welcome to Hospice Insights, the law and beyond, where we connect you to what matters in the ever-changing world of hospice and palliative care. Hospice labor and employment trends, labor relations revisited, the union at your door. No employer wants a union. While unions have had deep penetration in hospice, hospice employers are not immune to unionization efforts. In this session, Meg Pekarski is joined by our colleagues, John Anderson and Tom O'Day, who offer their insights on what makes unions attractive to employees and what you can do about it. The session addresses how a well-trained management staff identify union activity at the outset and can use proven human resource best practices to effectively prevent a union effort, and if one arises, to help your employees make good choices. The time to prepare for a union campaign comes well before the union knocks at the door. What you do now will improve your chances in this high-stakes game. Welcome, Tom and John, your repeat guests and my favorite duo. So thank you for, for joining me um, for talking about this important topic. You know, I need to warm you up because this is such a nerve wracking experience, you know, our podcasting. So how's your summer going, John? Good. I'm getting projects done on the house. I'm I'm the lawn is meticulous. Life is great. <laughs> and what about you, Tom? What have you been up to this summer? Things are going well. A lot of home time, which has been nothing but great. Our baseball seasons end soon, and uh, we're looking forward to fall sports if we can sneak them in under the COVID regulations. Good, good. Well, and I, I appreciate you both making time to to join the podcast since. Um, you know, I feel like legal work hasn't slowed down. If anything, uh, the pandemic, especially in the labor and employment side, you guys have been uh, busy folks. So I wanted to to talk about unions and and when you you and I were preparing for this, John, I started by saying, you know, how concerned do healthcare providers need to be about? unions and and what was your answer to me john <laughs> i think very concerned i think that um even though the unions are kind of on the decline throughout our country you know back in the back in the 50s unions uh, people in unions were 30 percent 30 percent of the workforce was unionized now it's less than 10 percent but it's growing in one area, and the one area where it's growing is in healthcare. And really? uh, yeah, and it's growing because people are getting older. People are, um, uh, healthcare is kind of a growing industry because of that. Um, it's an economic mainstay, even in a recession, in recessionary times. There's lots of job opportunities compared to the rest of the private sector. There's a strong need for, uh, for workers, uh, but still, we only have uh, less, you know, probably less than ten percent of the U.S. healthcare workers are part, members of unions. But every healthcare employer is an opportunity for a union, and all it takes is one disgruntled employee to try to get other employees to join. So, hospice in particular, Tom. I mean, 
why do you think hospices should be concerned about that? Because I'm sure some of our listeners will say, oh, yeah, you know, I I know the the nurses are unionized at the hospital, but there's no reason why I need to be concerned. I guess why 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 are we spending this time today? Why why should hospices care? Well, like John said, it's 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 clear that unions are a presence in healthcare more than most other industries. And to the extent that nurses or CNAs or any other medical profession is a unionized workforce at a hospital, the same kinds of rules and opportunity for employees to unionize exist within hospice as well. And ultimately, it comes down to employee choice. Um, the employees in a hospice have the same choice of whether to join or not join the union that those employees at the hospital have. And I think that the, the, the important component of the hospice workplace is asking yourself, do my employees want a union? There's a, a lot of different reasons why um, a management organization should be concerned about having a union, um, because more than anything, if employees are looking for a union to get involved, it's an example of dissatisfaction within the organization. So, so John, what makes in particular a union attractive to employees? And, and I, I guess as a, as a non-labor and employment lawyer, I would think that maybe seeing what other people are getting paid in your market and I want more money. I mean, is it money or is it benefits or is it culture? Is it all, all of it? Like, what is it? It's all of the above. It's um, okay. nobody really knows. I mean, we get we get indications from time to time and we're certainly uh, restricted as we'll talk about in terms of how we can find this information out. But the union tends to prey upon employees who are dissatisfied. And so the union, um, nothing like a great pandemic to expose people to um, uh, the uncertainties of the workplace and, and to create discomfort and having the union being able to come in and, and um, encourage people to uh, join. And, and so there's the, the there's, Employees have perceived lack of voice in their workplaces. They're concerned about their job security. Um, they have this feeling that they're not being respected or valued, and and they think they're being treated inconsistent, or that there's favorites that managers are treating better, mm. um, better wages, improved working conditions, improved benefits, and and oftentimes, unfortunately, um, we see supervisors who are not really well versed in how to be supervisors and that tends to drive people to unions and you know so the unions make a lot of promises and the promises that they make are to be the voice of the employees which is the collective nature of unions to improve improve job security to provide you know make sure that people get higher wages and better benefits and increased professional respect and an end to favoritism and abuse and and more opportunities to improve um, work skills for so professional development is a big pitch, especially to nurses within um, within the healthcare arena. So, I mean, it's 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 a a series of things. It's people who may be susceptible. It's the uncertainties of the workplace, and you know somebody's got a bug up their butt because somebody's getting paid more in the at the shop down the street, and yeah, 
all of those things um, that I've just kind of addressed or mentioned that the union promises are things that we think, Tom and I think, that employers, including hospice employers, can address to minimize the possibility that they'll go to uh, unionize. You know, I think as you're 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 saying that, you know, I think that probably every single workplace has disgruntled folks and people want to be paid higher or whatever. And all of us have been around the block enough to know that people get disgruntled from now and then. But when do you know that a union might be picking around in my business? Like, how do you get wind of this? So, Tom, maybe you can speak to that. Because I think everything, John, you said probably exists to some extent in every single workplace. How do you know that a union has now become interested and this one disgruntled person has made contact perhaps with a union or, or what? So what are, what are the organizing strategies? Right, I think, and that's a very good point. It, it leads to the best tool that management has to avoid unions, which is just listening to your employees. Like we've said a couple times, and we'll continue to emphasize, when employees are dissatisfied, then that leads to a union. They're, like Maggie pointed out, there are dissatisfied employees in every organization. If a dissatisfied employee knows that they can go to management with their concerns, with their questions, with their issues, and the employee knows that they'll be listened to when they go to management, and that action may be taken to address or correct or at least try and better understand the issue, I, I think that helps avoid unions entering the workplace. It helps avoid employees get interested in organizing. It's the work environment where employees feel like they aren't being listened to, where union organizing occurs. So the, the best tool that management has in first hearing about any organizing campaign and then in addressing any kind of organizing campaign is really just to listen to your employees. Get out there on the floor with the line staff, understand what they are doing, what they're hearing, what their concerns are, and and be there as a as a voice for that. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to give them what they're asking for, but at least you're going to listen to them and they feel like they've got perfect. Well, and and Tom, you read my mind because I was just going to go there is I feel like you're saying listening, listening, listening. And John says, well, people want better benefits and higher wages. And I mean, is listening really ever enough? And like, how do you I, I guess and maybe it's a rhetorical question, but I mean, what what sort of tips you over the line where I mean, I get it that listening is important, but does it ever, if you're not changing wages, and and I don't want to jump ahead here, but in terms of if you're just every year listening to what people have to say, but wages are stagnant, I mean, is that what pushes people over the edge? Or, I mean, I, I guess what's your experience, John? You seem to have something to say. What are your thoughts? Because you've been, you know, opposite the table for unions for decades. Yeah, I know. It's um, certainly uh, the broken record of listening and not doing anything is problematic. But the key, though, is to listen and to be transparent 
And if you can't do something about wages, to tell people why you can't. To, to, you know, to be very transparent about that we provide you, know, you with good jobs, that we haven't laid anybody off if that's the case, or we good job security, and we're providing you with the best wages that we can given the circumstances that we've been dealt, um, those are uh, go a long way. So it's not just listening, it's listening in combination with responding to employee complaints, being um, very open about the financial condition of the employer, and also convincing employees that even if they bring in a union, the union can't make the employer pay wages that the employer doesn't have the ability to pay. You know, they, they can demand and demand and demand, but at the end of the day, the collective bargaining agreement is entered into because management and the union have either agreed to it or they've reached an impasse and management has has implemented it. So those are the types of things that part of a uh, uh, an overall human resource program and a culture in a workplace that um, works beyond just listening. I think all the things we talked about when people can be disgruntled, this idea of, well, what makes someone satisfied in their job? Because you all have been doing this a long time. Like, what is important for job satisfaction? I mean, from a hospice perspective, as a hospice lawyer for 20 years, I mean, I think that hospice employees, I feel like you come to this work, you know, and that I think it, death and dying are not things that are, we don't like talking about those things in in this country. So, I mean, I think that that people who are drawn to do this work, they feel a sense of meaning and purpose. And so I think that that has probably been one thing why there hasn't been a lot of unionization and hospices, because I think we do have a lot of, um, you know, job satisfaction from I am helping relieving suffering from, from folks and at the bedside. And I think that, you know, this is always the push pull with nursing homes and hospice relationships is, Hospice may come in towards the tail end of someone's life and sort of get all the praise for helping. And the nursing home's like, you've been in my facility. I've cared for you for two years. And, you know, the hospice got all the donations and, and all that stuff. Uh, so so I do think historically there's been a lot of job satisfaction. But my guess is you're going to tell me that, that you may think that you're employees are satisfied, but perhaps they're not. Like, so, so Tom, I guess, can you speak to job satisfaction and, you know, your perception that you think people are satisfied? I just said, oh, our, our employees have meaning and purpose. That may not be true, or perhaps that's not what satisfies people any longer. Right. I think ultimately job satisfaction is most important. I, I do agree, though, that wages and compensation are probably the, the ultimate breaking points in mm. that relationship. So I may be fully satisfied with the culture in an organization, with the work that I'm doing, but if I know that I, I could go down the street to another organization and make $2 an hour more, that, that ultimately is a breaking point that your organization may not be able to meet. I think like John said, you talk to those employees about the other conditions or components of them being satisfied in the job. The culture is, is one of the most important things there. But ultimately, the, the breaking point could be um, compensation wages. And I don't think employees necessarily organize a union 
solely because of wages and compensation. That's certainly one factor among many. But I think if an employee is satisfied with all the other components of the culture, the workplace and the work that they're doing, they may forego some wages and compensation at some level in order to remain in that kind of welcoming culture from a human relations mm-hmm. standpoint. So I, I, you know, job satisfaction includes all these different components, but again, wages and compensation, if that employee wants to make more, I mean, John and I have sat across the table from unions that have said, we could make more money going to work at a Target or Walmart per hour. And that just ultimately may be true. I mean, we may represent a client that can't pay these CNAs or nurses any more money because of their own financial condition. And the employees ultimately have that ability with freedom of choice to move to a different employer outside the industry. Well, yeah, which brings us to this push-pull of, you know, paying for healthcare in this country and reimbursement rates and all of that stuff. But given your point about, you know, the breaking point might be wages and benefits, you know, I've read more and more articles recently about how younger generations feel much more comfortable being very transparent about their compensation than perhaps older generations or uh, generations in the past where you don't talk about how much money you make. And I guess, has that borne out in in your work? Um, and And how does that sort of play in? I mean, is that more just talking to my friends who work at different places? Or is it is it penetrating the workplace that we have more people talking internally about how much money they make and then, you know, using that as leverage? Yeah, John. It is. Actually, in, in the days when I started doing this long time ago, employers would routinely have rules that you could not talk to each other about your wages. And those, <laughs> seriously, they, they would have a rule and they would enforce that rule. And now the National Labor Relations Board has come down and said that you can't stop people from talking about their wages. And they do talk about their wages. Um, I think Tom's right that wages might be a breaking point. But I think equally as important is the treatment issue of how people are treated in the workplace. And you're absolutely right, Meg, that this is a calling. People come to a hospice to work because it's a calling. They they are caring individuals. And I think what they want from their employer, and I think what their employer ought to give them, is the same caring, respectful treatment that they give to the people that they're helping end of life issues with. And, um, you know, what Tom and I've tried to figure out for years, and, and I think we're getting really, really good at it, is you, you try to do your best uh, to figure out and create a work environment that really neutralizes what unions have to offer. And, um, you know, the unions make all these promises And maybe the individual supervisor can't affect a wage adjustment for an employee, but the supervisor can make the employee feel important, can make the employee feel valued, can can provide the respect and fair treatment, can treat people in similar situations similarly. All of those things that mean a lot to creating a workplace that people not only love but love to come to work in so it's all of these things are interrelated and the culture of the employer is so important in um overall job satisfaction and 
you know, the, the, the watchword that Tom and I use when we do a lot of training is that happy employees don't organize. And, you're, you know, you, you try to make sure that your employees are happy and that they feel comfortable in their space and in, in their jobs. Um, there are some employees you will never reach. There are some employees who you give them a 20% raise, they're wondering why it's not 25%. <laughs> so, um, you know, you're just not going to be happy at all. But the bulk of the workforce, you know, if you treat them with respect, you find out what the union's promising or what unions generally promise, and you address those issues. I mean, most employers are going to want to pay a competitive wage because this is a very competitive market, and it's hard to get good people and to keep good people. So you're going to pay the best wage that you can. And there's no union in town that can make you do anything more than that. And that, mm -hmm. so why should employees pay dues when they're going to get the benefit of the competitive marketplace for wages? Now you got me going. <laughs> I love it. No. Well, and so my question is, people will say, oh, I, I really think I've got a great culture and people are really happy here. It's like, I believe this to be true. But just because you believe that does not mean that it's truth right and so much of this is is perception right like i feel this way and so I, I guess what can you as an employer other than oh i come to work and the vibe seems good i mean what should you be doing to sort of measure these kinds of things because i hear you saying this is the key to preventing a union is to have your finger on the pulse so to speak and for sure yeah. And so how do you, is this, I, I see lots of people do job satisfaction surveys. Like, how do you measure this? How do you know that, that what you think is actually true? You don't use any one factor or measure. You use a multitude of them. Um, you know, employee morale is important. And so you want to one-on-one meetings with employees, surveys, like you pointed out, um, Exit interviews are big for gaining information. Attend yeah. Look at your attendance records. Well, look at your turnover rate. Um, make sure you have the infrastructure in place to motivate and retain employees, like performance evaluation processes, fair disciplinary processes. Nobody likes to discipline an employee. Nobody likes to terminate employees. They're expensive to replace. but treating people fair in that process should be a given. That should not be anything that we debate over at all. So um, there's lots of ways to measure that. And of course, one of the most important ways is to get managers and supervisors out of their offices and away from their computers and mm. to have them manage people in face-to-face. -face. Because you send somebody an email, like, I didn't like what you did today, you should, blah, 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 blah. Um, you know that that message got sent, but you don't know that the message got delivered. If you look somebody in the eye, you can you can do that. And if you're out there showing your employees that you're an advocate for them and that you really want them to succeed, and here's what they need to do to succeed, they're going to have respect for you, and they're going to even though they're getting a message that they don't necessarily like, they they see an opportunity to improve, and they see that you really care. And that's an important part of creating a culture that um, would support not having a union. There's this idea of employee choice that, that you and I talked about, um, Tom, and 
because uh, employees do have a choice. I mean, you have to vote on a union. And so tell me a little bit about the role of employee choice and how that, that works. You know, employee choice is absolutely paramount. I mean, a union can't organize and, and, and get into as a bargaining representative for employees unless 50% plus one deem it's preferable. And at the end of the day, it's their choice within the workforce. And employees have that ability to accept or reject their union. I think it's important for managers to recognize that they can educate employees about their choices. And some of the success that John and I have had with other organizations is making sure there are steps in place to make sure employees know their rights with respect to choice about a union. So an employee is free to choose whether or not to be part of an organization effort. Just because some employees want them or ask them to get out and march or circulate petitions or um, sign cards, it's not something the employee has to do. Um, the employee can be confident that they will have the right to be free from coercion or intimidation or threats from the union. Employees, of course, have that right to vote or not vote for the union to, to represent them in the workplace. And in, in some circumstances, employees have the right to choose, even if a union comes in, whether they want to be a member of the union or whether they want to pay dues. Now, we, we hear a lot about right-to-work states, and, and I think it's up to roughly 23 or so states in the United States are what are called, quote, right-to-work states. And those right-to-work laws in those states guarantee that no person can be compelled to join a union or pay union dues as a condition of employment. So what will happen in the other states that are not right to work states is unions will come in, they'll get voted into the workplace. They may be voted in by 51% of the employees. Can, can we stop there, Tom? So, sure. so, okay, I have 100 employees. Do all of my employees have to vote or is it 50% of the people that vote or like, how does that work? Like, what if, what if only 50 of my hundred employees work, does the union fail? Correct. No, at the end of the day, it's the, it's the greater percentage, the majority of the employees who do vote. Wow. So if only half your employees vote and the majority of the half that voted, voted for it, they you yeah, could get a union. Yeah. You've got a really? Wow. Right. And, and that's one, I mean, again, making sure employees know that they have that choice and they have the right to exercise their vote to support or not to support a union is important. And, and you don't even have to say no, you just cannot vote at all. Well, yeah, if you vote. don't vote, you're, you're essentially voting for the union because you're yeah. making it easier to reach the majority of those people who vote. Mm. Correct. Wow. And wow. we educate we educate employees about that to make we want to make sure that they understand that they're making a very important decision and that they ought to know how this process works and they ought to vote. Make their voice heard. With how that plays out in your experience, is it larger or smaller providers that I guess get a union? I mean, is it like if I have ten employees and only like, I, I mean, I'm just trying to play the numbers here. Like, how, how that just seems crazy if, I mean, there's a lot of disengagement, right? Our political voting is way down. And so the fact I could see a lot of people say, oh, this doesn't impact me. 
so I'm not going to vote. And then you have two people who voted for the union and like no one else did. But wow. I learned something here on this podcast that we're doing. Uh, wow. That's, it is important. You've been telling me, Tom and John, that we need to talk unions. And I said no. And wow. So that that's significant. Okay. So I interrupted your flow, Tom. So you were talking about, um, you know, people voting and then. Sure. In, in your example, Meg, of a, a company with 100 employees. Let's say 30 employees actually vote in the election for a union or to, to reject a union. And 16 of those employees, out of the 30 who voted, out of the 100 total employees, say, yes, we want a union. In that circumstance, the union then becomes the bargaining representative for the, for the entire unit, all those employees who are of the same classification or similar classification. All 100 of those employees are now part of a bargaining unit represented by a union, even though 16 of those 100 said we want the union. In right-to-work states, that's extremely relevant and important because what a union normally will do in a non-right-to-work state is seek to include language in a bargaining agreement that says all people who are part of this bargaining unit, all 100 of those employees, must be a member of the union must pay union dues in order to be employed with our organization. In those non-right-to-work states, that's why the vote for a union is, is even more important. And that mm. education for employees, that it's important for them to exercise their choice and exercise their vote is extremely important. Do you happen to know, because we have uh, um, lots of... of um, listeners sort of in the southern part of the the country and so in the right to work state i mean I, in our home state of wisconsin we're a right to work state right correct we are a right to work state in wisconsin and so in terms of the rest of the did you say there's 27 or something right to work states are they pocketed uh in certain areas or are they really spread out i would say it's in the southeast corner of the country, most of those states are right-to-work states. Okay. On the far west coast and upper northeast, they are non-right-to-work states. Okay. Got and it. In the middle of the country is a, a, a smattering of right-to-work and non-right-to-work okay. states. Okay. Interesting. So um, I've done these things. I try to keep my finger on the pulse. I... I do surveys, I do exit interviews, I feel like I know what's going on. Why am I going to know that there is some union organizing activity, John? You're going to know oftentimes because you've kept your ear to the ground. Your supervisors really are your eyes and your ears and your voice out there on the floor, and they will hear things. Um, they may, it may be that they see union organizing cards in a break room. It may be that they walk around the corner and a group of employees stop talking. People become more critical of the employer. Uh, you know, the, the employees have uh, expressions of terms that are typical labor union terms like grievances, arbitration, seniority. You see a union representative in the parking lot. You know, uh, 
SEIU's got a van parked in the parking lot and they're handing out, <laughs> they're handing out leaflets to, to workers. I mean, all of those things, it's like, you know, there's a meeting at somebody's house. I mean, a lot of these factors come to play and we could spend a lot of time talking about them. But um, the fact of the matter is you should see some evidence in the workplace, but oftentimes you don't. And the first thing you see is a demand that's coming to you by somebody with a fistful of union authorization cards saying, the union represents a majority of people here, you should voluntarily recognize us. And you never wanna do that because you don't know the circumstances under which those cards were obtained. Uh, and you wanna so what make does sure that mean, voluntarily recognize us, recognize, so no vote? Well, tip, the typical process is the union um, makes a demand to bargain or demand uh, that you recognize them and they show these cards and you have the right to voluntarily recognize the union. You could do that as the employer if you want to, but then you've got a union. A better approach would be to force the, the process through the statutory national labor relations process, which requires the union to file a petition and a showing of interest, which is 30%, not 50, 30% of the workers. And that, that's an administrative determination. And once you have that, then you engage in discussions about what the union should be, and you go to an election. Without the election, you really don't have any idea as to whether majority of your employees support the union. I mean, you have the potentially have the cards, but the cards can be uh, obtained under false pretenses, can be obtained in ways that are questionable. So you're not really sure that employees have exercised their free choice, the free choice that they would have in a National Labor Relations Board supervised election, which is like a national political election. You go into a booth in the privacy of the booth, oh, okay. you vote and nobody knows how you would vote. So, so, uh, so yeah, I, that's really because I wanted to get a flavor for that. So these union cards, Someone can say, I got the stack and people want the union. Do they have to sign their name to that? Oh, yeah. They sign their name and it's really, um, you know, they're all worded differently. And, you know, I like to think I'm myself being pretty smart, but I read those cards and they're very difficult to decipher. They're contracts, essentially contracts between the union and the employee, not the employer. Um, but you don't want to look at them because you don't want to know who's organizing the union because that could be used against you if you were to take some actions as the employer in terms of retaliation or um, or discrimination. Uh, so that's why, you know, if you if you as the employer are given a stack of cards, hand them back, don't look at them. They'll say, we don't believe that a majority of our employees in the uncoerced exercise of their discretion really want to have a union. And you know how to do it. If you're truly interested in this, go to the National Labor Relations Board which is the safest place for the employer to be. So, and that process, because I want to understand what that looks like. So once you say, okay, you, you got to use the formal process, it is voting. There are people from the National Labor Relations Board that are on site that are administering the election. Correct. It doesn't and necessarily, it may not be on site. It might be a mail ballot election. But okay. essentially what happens is you, you decide and describe the bargaining unit, and then the election is set probably within two to three weeks. Then there's a campaign period where we do what Tom was referencing earlier, where we educate employees mm -hmm. about 
the, their ability to choose and what it means to vote and what it means not to vote. And the employer has free speech rights to tell employees that we don't think we need a union here. Why would you vote for a union? We're giving you the best benefits in the market. You know, no union can make us do more than what we want to do anyway. So why would you pay dues for something that you already get? All of those things play out in a campaign because the union will be campaigning too, making promises and um, that they can't deliver on without your concurrence as the employer. So in your experience, because obviously you guys do this a lot, or I guess a dwindling amount uh, uh, historically, but perhaps maybe on the rise here, like how many union efforts are defeated? Is it 50-50? And or if they've gotten the card, then, you know, it's so far down a field that you can't right the ship or what's your experience? The best, let me, let me take this to Tom. The best way to defeat the union is to never get to the point of the election. That's why it's so critical that you have your managers out there listening to employees, giving you and your human resource professionals indications that there's union activity or that there's dissatisfaction someplace and treating employees in the right way to create the environment and culture. So the best way to win an election is to not have one. When you get to the election, I think you the employer loses more often than they win mm. because they, you know, they, they're not going to file unless they've got even though they only need 30% to get the election, oftentimes they won't file unless they've got 60 or 70%, knowing that there will be some form of a campaign. Very, very difficult to address the issues that have brought the union to your workplace after the election has been scheduled because you can't threaten employees, you can't interrogate employees about why they're bringing the union in, you can't make promises, you know, vote the union down and we will do X, Y, and Z. Uh, and you can't engage in surveillance. You can't sit there and, and study who is supporting the union and then take adverse action as a result of that. So I think you lose, the employers generally will lose more elections than they will win if they get to the point where that election has been scheduled. But, you know, you still run the campaign and you still try to educate mm -hmm. employees that this is an important decision and that they ought to have all the information that they can get before they vote. Uh, you know, obviously you have dealt with many a disgruntled employee and, and I guess if you were talking to the disgruntled employee and Tom, and I, this is for you, Tom, and you're saying, and again, obviously there is no union, so you're you're not coercing them or anything. But why would you say to a disgruntled employee a union isn't an answer? Sure, and and it's important to recognize as I answer this question that I have a management side attorney. John is a management side attorney. In in my world, I would say that unions are not something that um, is good for an organization if employees are already being taken care of. If we assume that employees are already being taken care of, that the culture is the way it should be, um, the employees are respected, then unions are, are not good or necessary for an organization. And, and two main reasons for that is that a union will drive inefficiencies 
within an organization, and a union will increase costs within an organization, and not necessarily wage and compensation costs. So let me let me start first with inefficiencies. Because there's a union involved, there is now a third-party organization that is part of most discussions in the workplace. So an example that that um, that I use from the past is. Um, an incident where one of our employees had let another person, a non-employee union staffer, into a secure door of a facility. And a manager sat down with the employee, had a non-disciplinary meeting with the employee and said, um, you can't let non-employees do secure doors. You just can't do that. They need to follow the visitor policy. Here are the policies and, and lay those out in front of the employee. employee understands, recognizes the policies, moves on. Five-minute conversation. The union representative hearing about that incident um, escalates it to a complaint with the National Labor Relations Board. For the union, that that was a problem. And that third-party organization, that was a problem. You just lose the inability for um, reasonable decisions and efficient ways to take care of disputes within the workplace. Um, you lose some ability to work collaboratively with your employees. Um, employees may look to the union in order to resolve what otherwise might have been taken care of in a conversation between the employee and the manager. Um, policy changes, for instance, may need to involve the union. Want to address COVID-related safety issues, for instance, you may need to involve the union. And again, that, those are all additional time and additional inefficiencies. If you want to provide hazard pay, for the heroes who work in your facility, that's something that you would have to bring the union involved, the union in those discussions. And ultimately you can make that decision, but with union input as well, that just slows down the process. You also lose the ability to reward employees in a union setting. The inefficiencies with um, compensation related to uh, successful management of a situation by an employee, or if you wanna reward an employee, you can't do that unless you involve the union. And unions are all about the collective. They're not um, wanting to recognize individuals. They want to mm. recognize the collective group of people. So that's, again, one of the main reasons why um, unions uh, aren't necessary where employees are already taken care of is because they increase in efficiency. The second main reason why unions aren't necessary if employees are already taken care of is because unions do result in increased costs. You know, the five-minute disciplinary discussion becomes a, a federal case. The challenges with respect to managing employees get elevated to grievances and a grievance process, potentially with an arbitration process or an unfair labor practice that's involved. All of those things, grievances, arbitrations, unfair labor practice, result in increased attorney's fees. They result in increased um, time off for management and employees in order to deal with the issue. Um, it increases stress in the workplace, for sure. Um, and then there's a cost to the employees as well as the employer. The employees, in order to belong to a union, are, are, are required to pay union dues. And that's an automatic deduction most times. That's made directly from their paycheck on a regular basis. So, again, that second reason why unions aren't necessary, if employees are already taken care of, is because of increased costs. Mm. So, um, as as we're wrapping up here, um, 
it's nice not to have a podcast where we're talking about COVID, but I feel like, you know, as you're saying all of this, I wanted to get your thoughts, Tom, John, on how obviously lots of discussion about PPE and safety in the workplace with, with COVID. Um, do you think there could be more union activity as, as employees are bringing up safety concerns and that do you think unions are going to be using that as I will help protect you from these employers who aren't looking out for you or? They already are. Okay. They're out there. I mean, again, they're, they like to prey on the uncertainties and, and the difficulties that employees are having now coming to work because they're, they're, they have a great deal of fear. And the union tends to prey on those people. They, um, you know, they're, they're, they have a duty, they work with the duty to supply information. So they're asking employers for information about safety and PPE. And if they don't get the right response or get the response in the quick, quick form that they want, they will go to the National Labor Relations Board because of this duty that employers have to respond to these inquiries. Um, they coach employees as to you know what appropriate levels of PPE should be, and you know the way that employers ought to counter those types of things is to again communicate, be transparent about how they're dealing with the pandemic, um, and you know what what types of of um, equipment is available to employees, how it should be used, what the expectations are. What are the sanitation requirements? What are we doing to help people make sure that this is a safe place to work? All of that stuff is stuff that the employer needs to be out there rather than treating employees like mushrooms. Put your employees in the dark, they'll come up with their own description of what you're doing as opposed to you mm. going out there and being the reliable source of information as to how uh, you're handling the pandemic in light of local public health directives and um, Center for Disease Control recommendations on on sanitation and how you handle things. You know, people need these services. These operations need to be open, um, whether it's in-house uh, resident hospice or hospice going out to people. We need to make sure that we're doing it the right way and the safe way. And to boast, it, it may not be the right word, but boast to your employees about how you're doing things that are not only required, but above and beyond what's being required to make sure that they're safe and how you're taking care of them when they've had an exposure incident. Those are all very important things. I, I give an example where toward the beginning of the COVID situation, an employer wants to do and wanted to do what was right for its employees. It, it already was making efforts to obtain PPE it was already making efforts to explore potential um, increases in, in salary or hazard pay type um, arrangements for its employees, collaboratively work with the union, um, discuss those issues, and ultimately the employer put what they wanted to do on the table and the union just accepted it and likely moved on to the next organization that it wanted to, uh, to approach about those mm -hmm. issues. So the, the employer ultimately, like we've said throughout, has the ability to do the things it wants to do. It wants to take care of its employees so that its employees can take care of the patients. If there's a union involved, just continue to communicate with the employee about those issues. Um, talk to the employees directly about PPE and uh, compensation-related issues. 
after you've had those discussions with the union, and then ultimately you can still have a workplace where everyone's content in that. Yeah, no, this has um, been, been really interesting. I think really timely topic, not just because of healthcare being a growing industry, but I think, you know, these concluding thoughts on how the current pandemic and and I guess being aware that that union activity may be even increasing in light of this, but good for, for folks to um, be having these things front of mind as they try to manage through really unprecedented and, and very difficult times. But um, I agree. I mean, most pl employers really do want to do right by their employees, because as you said, John, right, I mean, we've all been there. I mean, if you have good employees, you want to keep them happy and retain them and you, you'll do whatever it takes to, you know, um, and whatever it takes is I don't have a mountain of money, but you know, and I, I think it was encouraging to hear you guys say that, yeah, wages matter and they're really important, but culture is and all these other sort of the intangibles that, um, because I do think as healthcare continues to um, get strapped, and especially now, I mean, the, the increased costs with, with COVID, there's still a lot we can do to, um, you know, improve the lives of our employees and, and support them in the really important work they do. So, so, um, but this has been a great conversation and fun as always. I enjoy spending an hour with the two of you, but we don't have any cocktails or, or, uh, and, you know, we kept it all work related except for my, how's your summer going? But, but I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedules to, to share this important information with our listeners. And I'm going to require you come back and talk to our listeners about something else, not union related, but labor and employment related, because you guys always have fun and interesting stories. So um, I look forward to, to you joining us again. Thanks for having us. Take care. Bye-bye.